relationships, parenting, faith. Discover books that will help you grow. The Wednesday Bookmark is brought to you by BooksForChrist.com. Joining us this week for the Wednesday Bookmark is Sandra Glon. Sandra is Associate Professor of Media Arts and Worship at Dallas Theological Seminary. She's also a journalist and the author or co-author of more than 20 books. We're going to talk this morning about her brand new one. She's the editor of Vindicating the Vixens, Revisiting Sexualized, Vilified, and Marginalized Women of the Bible. Thanks so much for your time this morning, Sandra. My pleasure. So this book is a collaboration written by an international team of scholars, 16 people. Tell us more about these scholars and how the effort came together. So this has been a dream of mine for about 10 years as I've been collecting research and stories and good writing from people who are all biblical scholars. Some of them have master's degrees. Some of them have multiple doctorates. But the one thing they all have in common is that they've taken a look at one of the women in the Bible that we've tended to vilify, and I believe wrongly, and they believe wrongly. And I thought it was important that we have both men and women saying it rather than just women saying, hey, you're vilifying us, so that it was clear that our our primary concern is not gender here. Our concern is how we're handling the text. And who would have guessed that, you know, our years work, years and years of efforts would have culminated and released around the time Me Too and Church Too hit. So that was completely out of our control, but it's been very timely. As a general point, even outside of talking about some of these specific women, you believe that we sometimes tie the acts committed by the Bible's so-called bad girls to something sexual, when in fact it's not, or the Bible even states or implies or infers a different motivation. Give us some examples of that dynamic. Probably the one that's most commonly preached, well, one would be Bathsheba, but but even more common than that would be the woman at the well. We assume uh, Jesus talks to her and he he says, go get your husband, and she, she said, I don't have a husband he said you're right you've had five and the one you have now isn't your own and as westerners in the 21st century and we, we picture a man talking to a woman so we assume she's 23 or 24 years old so we see this woman as having divorced or dumped five husbands and now living with a guy hmm. but what we know about the ancient near east marriage practices and, and this comes up every resurrection day right you know women's testimony in the court of law was not a thing you couldn't just walk into a court of law and dump your husband so it would be very unusual for a woman to have initiated divorce and certainly not that many times. So what does that mean? Well, the number one cause of death for men is war. And what if this woman has been widowed multiple times? And now in order to eat, she has to be a concubine or share her husband. That that changes the whole story. It changes the dynamic. It means she's an older woman. It means she's been through tons of heartbreak that had, was not of her doing. So that also means then that when, when Jesus starts talking to her and she brings up spiritual questions and says, when Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things, we've tended to interpret that as her deflecting and changing the subject. No. Jesus is talking to a woman who's had all kinds of brokenness, and she is hoping in Messiah... And he comes right out and says, I'm it. It's the only time he is that direct. Usually he's veiling it. Who do you think I am? Who do you say I am? What does the scripture say? But in this case, he comes right out and says, I'm it. And he never does get a drink, poor guy. Like she seems to dump her whatever she's got and runs off to tell people that the Messiah is here. Wow, that is so interesting. Like you say, it just completely changes the tone of the entire story. So let's, let's talk about the term 
prostitute? Because I know that comes up in the yeah. book as well. What do we misunderstand yeah. as modern Christians about that term in biblical times? Well, um, I think that, you know, there, it is called the oldest profession, and, and certainly Rahab is called a prostitute, rightfully so. The challenge with Rahab is that that's the first thing we think of when we think of Rahab. She's a, she's a woman who is in a condemned city, It's the first city that Israel is going to go in and take in the conquest. The spies are sent out, and the first place they go is, huh, (laughs) her house, which should sort of make us scratch our heads. And the spies never are said to have accomplished what they set out to do. She really has to to protect them Mm -hmm. the whole time. But the main thing about her story is she's heard about Yahweh. She's heard about this amazing God. She's heard about stories that are 40 years old, the, the parting of the sea, decades earlier. And she fears him and follows him, and as a result... She is spared from the conquest, the the taking of all the citizens of the city. And so not only does that tell us this is a woman of faith, she has not very much light to go on, but she believes and she shows up in the faith chapter. So faith is the first thing we should be thinking when we think of her rather than her former occupation. And she, you know, she becomes, you know, in the line of Christ. And uh, every time, like there are times when, when Abraham is described as a man of faith and her story comes up next, it's sort of like they're paired. He's the guy who's the faith story in the Old Testament that's a male and she's the faith story for a female. But we do tend to assign that word to Bathsheba, who if you relook at that story and some, just some of the word studies, she, the word for bathing could be just washing. She'd be washing her hands. It doesn't mean that she was undressed in a bathtub. It's, there's nothing to suggest that she's trying to seduce the king. She doesn't go to the palace. He actually sends men, plural, to get her. So just this whole idea that she is trying to seduce, it says that she grieved for her husband. Mm-hmm. And so we should be looking at that story that the writer has set it up for us to see it from David's point of view. And it should be 100% guilt on David. Not that women can never seduce men, because we do get that story with Joseph. And there's a story about that happening. That's just not what's happening with Bathsheba. David is completely abusing his power. And it, and it should be a warning to us. Here's this guy who was a shepherd boy on the backside of the wilderness that God raised up, and he had a whole heart for God. And now he's willing to commit adultery and murder in his abuse of power. That should, that should scare us a little bit. So again, there's a Me Too story where a powerful man has abused his power, and we have tended to sexualize her and blame her instead of seeing that he was responsible in that story. Yeah, that's so interesting, too, because we almost, and sometimes we actually hear it said in this way, David and Bathsheba had an affair. Yeah. But that's not really what happened. No, not even close. Because that suggests agency on her part. It suggests that she had a choice. And if you think about it, you know, her husband is a warrior for the king. What would you think if... If the king summoned you to the castle and your husband is one of his warriors, you're probably thinking he's going to tell you that your husband's dead. Like you, you know, people say, why would she go? Well, you couldn't, you don't refuse the king when he sends two guys for mm-hmm. you. Yeah. But she had no reason to question his integrity at that point. Another, another story where the, that word prostitute comes up is with Tamar, where she con- conceals her identity because she cares about the lineage of the Messiah and she wants to give her dead husband a legacy. And her father-in-law has refused that. Our misunderstanding of the laws that protected women make us look at her and again think she's this horrible person. But we, she's well within what we understand laws in the ancient Near East. Her, the text says her father-in-law is widowed 
both of his sons have died, and it's it's up to him or his existing son to keep the legacy going. This is the legacy of the Messiah. This is the, the legacy of promise. And so here is this woman who is like, well, he if he's not going to do what's right by me, I'm going to make sure this legacy happens in, in another way. And when he, he finds out she's pregnant, he wants an honor killing. He wants her burned to death. What a hypocrite. Like he's the one who impregnated her. He mm. just doesn't know it. But then when she shows basically his identification that she's kept, his words are basically, you're the righteous one, not me. You know, it's sometimes translated, you're more righteous than I, which is okay. But, you know, perhaps a better translation is like, whatever it is, he realizes she's the good person here. She has gone after what is important and he has not. And the next time you see him, this is Judah, He's the guy who sold his brother Joseph to slavery, but the next time you see him, he is offering his own life for Benjamin, Joseph's little brother. There's, there's been a character change in him. And often we completely leave out the Tamar story when we're teaching the Old Testament because we think it's a weird diversion and we don't get. This is essential to the story of the character arc for why Judah changed. Wow, there is so much even in what you just said, and I can feel the passion that you have for this subject, yeah. too, and all the knowledge that you're you're kind of bestowing upon us right now. Our time is starting to run short, but I wanted to get your thoughts on Jesus' mother Mary, probably the most discussed yeah. woman of the Bible. What do we <laughs> yeah. still misunderstand about her story? So that's why the subtitle has the word marginalized, because for many Protestants, we'll have studies of women in the Bible that don't even cover the Virgin Mary, and she's a fourth most mentioned person in the New Testament. But because we think she's too Roman Catholic, or she's too Orthodox with a capital O, Protestants go the other extreme and just don't even study her or honor her or recognize what a woman of faith she is. It's our loss. Leave us with a final thought, one more nugget to chew on. What's the big takeaway here? We need all eyes on the text. We need men and women working in partnership, looking at these texts, coming to the table together, and under underrepresented groups looking at the text see things that those of us who are well represented are going to miss. Well, proceeds from the sales of this book, I wanted to make sure I mentioned this, will go to benefit Thank the work you. of the International Justice Mission. And uh, they, yeah. are, they are definitely loved here in Ottawa. They're loved the world over because of their incredible work. So you're They're so working with the sexualized, vilified, marginalized. Yeah, that's true. Good point. Yeah. So even just by buying this book, you're supporting the work of IJM. And again, the book we've been discussing this morning is Vindicating the Vixens, Revisiting Sexualized, Vilified, and Marginalized Women of the Bible. Sandra Glon, our guest this week for the Wednesday Bookmark. So interesting. Thank you so much, Sandra, for your time this morning. Thanks a lot for having me. To hear this interview again or to discover more great books, visit chri.ca. The Wednesday Bookmark, brought to you by BooksForChrist.com. Proudly Canadian, BooksForChrist.com.